I had, I think, just turned 40, and everything was good, just like you were describing. I had a family, I, was, I had a young son, I was house on the hill, everything was beautiful, and I was dying inside. Mm-hmm. There was a, a mm-hmm. slow, a slow suffocation that was happening inside me, a depression that was borderline suicidal. And the defeat saved my life because it was the only point at which I was finally able to say, I need help. And that's when I surrendered and asked three men to, to do a ritual for me, mm-hmm. to help me get out of this grave that I was digging every day. Welcome to Men This Way, the podcast for every man who seeks to live his deepest purpose in life who's committed to showing up fully and giving his unique gifts to the world. Because if not you, then who? I'm your host and fellow journeyman, Brian Reeves. Brian with a Y, Reeves. Men, this way. Why do many men have to hit bottom before we're truly willing to make meaningful changes in how we show up in our lives? Could our cultural obsession with the individual self be serving to propel us towards our collective doom? And could learning how to grieve, not just the big losses in life, but the everyday ones we typically ignore, be a key to our vitality and to living a rich, soul-centered life? Well, in this very special episode, my guest Francis Weller and I mine these questions and more for useful insights to make a meaningful difference in your life. And this is a very special episode. For about the last year, I have been diving down the Francis Weller rabbit hole. And if you haven't yet, I'm telling you, you need to. Humanity needs you to. This man is a medicine carrier for humanity. I first discovered Francis Weller a year ago when a good friend of mine turned me on to his book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow. That book is one of the most beautiful, poignant, rich, and instructive even, books I've ever read. Now, it's not merely a book about grieving in the way we traditionally think of grieving in our Western culture, as if grieving is something that only happens when we experience a major and obvious, tangible loss in our lives, which, by the way, we don't even do that well in our culture. But Francis's book is about ways of creating soul renewal by recasting grieving in our culture as essential routine practice to ensure not just our individual health and well-being, but the health and well-being of our entire community and of the planet itself. Francis's work is immense. And in a world of many olders but too few elders, particularly elder men, Francis Weller is a true wise elder. And he's super easy to talk with. For more than 30 years, he's been a psychotherapist, a writer, and a soul activist. And he is a master of synthesizing diverse streams of thought from psychology, anthropology, mythology, alchemy, indigenous cultures, and poetic traditions. And the core of his work is creating pathways to reclaiming our indigenous soul, what psychologist Carl Jung called the unforgotten wisdom that resides in the heart of the psyche. Now, before we dive in, I want to tell you that Elevate 2022, my year-long coaching journey for men committed to thriving, has just three spots left as of this recording. We begin in January right around the corner. So 
if you're a man interested in stepping into a powerful brotherhood of men alongside me and 12 other like-hearted men, please apply now at brianreeves.com slash elevate. Elevate 2022 includes personal coaching with me throughout the year and alongside a select group of solid men, your soon-to-be brothers, we'll go on a deep dive into the insights, distinctions, and practices that allow you to step into your deepest life purpose, to create and support a thriving, intimate relationship, and tap into real, authentic, heart-centered power to truly serve your loved ones, your aspirations, your community. And we'll also meet in person for an epic five-day retreat in a beautiful nature location in North Carolina. Now, through this experience, these men and I will become your brothers for life. And you will be challenged to go beyond your comfort zone because you surely know by now that if you're going to touch the heart of what matters most to you in life, you ain't going to get there by staying comfortable. And this isn't for everyone. But if you have an inkling, this might be for you. Apply now at brianreeves.com slash elevate. Just take the next step. This could be one of the greatest gifts you ever give yourself. The gift of brotherhood with extraordinary men. Brian Reeves. Remember, it's brian with a Y. Reeves.com slash elevate. Now back to my conversation with Francis Weller. Now I just want to confess something. I think I might talk a little bit too much in the beginning of this episode with Francis but I think that's what sometimes happens when I'm in the presence of a true elder and I've long felt unseen by any true elders. So forgive me if that's the case. <sighs> so now I invite you to take a deep breath and stay present with us and stay present with this brilliant and insightful and visionary and wise elder Francis Weller all the way through to the end of this beautiful and profound episode of Men This Way. All right, let's dive. <sighs> Francis Weller, sir, welcome to Men This Way. Glad to be here with you, Brian. Thanks for inviting me. Now, I got to tell you, my heart is pounding right now. And, and as I've been you know, sitting with, with the, the, the anticipation of this conversation with you, we've been... We've been in conversation for the better part of this year uh, about, you know, I had, to, I had to cancel our interview back in May, I think. I was going on a trip and, you know, Francis, your work has touched an immensity in me that I think my heart is pounding. You know, I, I don't get so you know, nervous about meeting my heroes or, or celebrities or anything. I, I don't, that, that's not a thing for me. But your work has touched something so immense in me that I, I, I think what's happening for me is it's just like I'm wanting to explore everything with you and dive into everything with you. And I know there's just no way we're going to, you know, we're going to approach something, but, but, to do it, justice would take lifetimes, or at least the rest of one of our lifetimes to do it. And, and I think it's, you know, I, I, so I want to share that and I want to say that and I want my audience to hear it. I want you to hear it because you have medicine. You are, you are a medicine carrier in, in ways that few uh, of, of my, certainly the, the elders and even many of the teachers I've studied, I think, I don't know. I'm not trying to compare, but I just I just want to say thank you. 
Francis, for being here. I'm very touched by those words, Brian. I, I'm glad that the path that I have been called to has found some resonance out there in the world. And I can see by and hear by your words that it's landed in you in a, in a, yeah. in a good way, which is meaningful for me. I mean, yeah, you keep me spiritually employed. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. I, I know that. Uh, yes. Yes. I can relate to that very much. And, and, you know, as a 47 year old man, I'm 47 and, you know, it's only in the last, you know, seven, eight years, I think since I approached 40 and entered my forties that I started to realize, wait a second, I don't really have elders. I think, I think, it, I don't know if it's Bill Plotkin, somebody, this, this makes this distinction between olders and elders. And I realized, you know, within the last 10 years, I don't really have elders. I have a few, and if and the ones I have are, they seem to be women that I, that I really look up to as elders, like, like people showing me the way into the life my soul feels it was born to live through this body. And I think as, you know, as an, as an, as a man, especially, I look to you, I look at your work, I, 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 as I've spent much time with you and your offerings over the past, you know, it was one of my coaching clients, a man who, who brought you to me and one of the greatest gifts I've ever been given. Mm. So I, you know, I see you, you know, I look to you as an elder and you are a rare commodity, sadly, in my experience. And I think in a lot of our listeners, men and women, I think they'll be able to relate to that as well. So it's a privilege to sit here with you today. Thank you. You know, I, I want to start, uh, there's a, so a starting point for our conversation, and we've already begun, and I know that I'm talking a lot, and I want to shut up and let you talk, because, but also, you know, it's crazy, like as a, as a, as a younger, feeling unseen by the elders, here I am sitting with an elder, there's that part of me that's like, see me, guide me, help me. Like that's part of the pounding in my chest is that is the as a, as a man in his mid 40s longing for the elder man particularly to say you know look at the name of my podcast men this way let me let me start here because you said something that you know i've often remarked as a, as a coach myself I, and i've worked with couples for many years and, and men and women now and you said men don't show up voluntarily. They show up because they have been defeated. Yes. And I think you were sharing this in the context of who shows up in your therapy office primarily. Yes. <laughs> and I, I sat with that and I, you know, I've reflected on this even myself. Like I'm a man who's been on some level committed to personal growth work for decades. I've done all the transformational workshops. I've done, you know, psychedelics for the, for the purpose of awareness in, and insight, I have a master's degree in human relations. Like I've studied with teachers, like I've done all this stuff. And yet I'm aware that the, that the times in my life when I really showed up, Francis, were the times when indeed something in life had fully defeated me. Mm -hmm. And I could no longer just rely on book knowledge, you know, or a smart intellect. So I'm curious, you know, why do you suppose, so two questions in this, why do you suppose it takes that for us men to be defeated? before we really show up, like to hit some bottom. And I'm really interested to know about you personally as a man, a, a time in your life when you were finally fully defeated and that called you to then really show up in a new way. Hmm. Okay, the first part, um, 
you know, all of the striving we do to improve, to get better, to be more spiritual, more awake, more you know, aware, those are all good pursuits, but they oftentimes get kind of tangled up with a heroic pursuit. You know, somehow making ourselves better oftentimes means I, I let behind, I leave behind huge parts of me, the weakness, the inadequacy, the shame, the lonely one, the, all the inferior brothers, the outcast brothers. And there's no real arrival into soul without them. Mm. There's an arrival into self, self-improvement, you know, self-mastery. Mm -hmm. So we have to make a little distinction between self and soul. Mm. Self is the presentation of my identity to the world. Soul is what animates that identity. But if I'm so busy improving the self, oftentimes I neglect the soul. And soul takes us into the vulnerable, into grief, into loss, you know, into our own tender ground. And that's why defeat comes along periodically and throws us to the ground, into the depths, into confusion, into bewilderment into shame, you know, we are thrown into that territory, not out of some, uh, what would you call it, um, sadistic sense, but out, on, uh, out of a necessity to weave that part into our being. Because mm -hmm. like I say, there was no arrival. There's no even real true sense of belonging until the whole house comes with me. Not just the ideal parts, not just the successful competent brothers, mm -hmm. but also all of the weak ones, all of the, the ones that drool and mm -hmm. don't know how to dress properly. And, <laughs> you know, yeah. the ones where we want to keep a little hidden because we are a heroic culture. And that imagery demands that we always show strength. Yeah. So we only get to show part of ourselves. And if that's the case, no man's going to walk into my office. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because that's the image of strength. Yeah. But unless there's been a depression, an addiction, a divorce, loss of a job, an illness, death of someone close, yeah. that's when they crawl in the door. That's when they've been brought to the ground. And if we're lucky, we remain there. We, yeah. we, remain, we remain close to the ground. Humus, humility, not heroics, but humility is what binds us together. Mm. It makes us recognize the commonality that we all share. The heroic distinguishes us. The, hum the, the humility uh, entangles us with one another. You, you talk a lot about this heroic culture, and, and I, I think I first heard you use that term to identify that. And that really, really spoke to me, especially in these last many years as as I've been, you know, okay, I'm a white man, 47 years old. I'm a white man. I've pretty much gotten everything that that this culture says is coming to me. Mm -hmm. I got the woman. I got the work. I'm making money. I'm successful. I have admiration. I have, you know, just, I'm not in the 0.1%, the but I'm probably in the 1%. And holy shit, Francis, all of a sudden, what now? sort of happened to me in the last, you know, three, four years, like, oh my God, mm -hmm. I don't know, what do I, what, what now? You know, I think you, your work came to me, look, I wish it would have come to me 25 years ago, but here we are, you know, because 
grieving. You know, you talk about the heroic culture and what, what arises for me inside of that, you know, being defeated. Well, I got everything I wanted, more or less. I mean, I've been defeated in many ways over the years and some, you know, usually at the hands of a woman <laughs> or a relationship anyway, or, or running out of money at different times, whatever. But no, nothing major happened. Nobody died. You know, I, in my case, I wasn't sexually abused or assaulted or, or, you know, just, and so a part of me has been thinking, well, what do I have to grieve? You know, what, what, what do I have to, you know, why should I hurt? So my parents divorced at four. So what? Um, you know, no one beat me. So I grew up with alcoholism in my, my home at a young age. So what? I mean, I wasn't beaten. Nobody talked bad to me. And yet, Francis, in these last few years, I'm, I'm uncovering a mountain of grief and sadness and loss. And, and the heroic culture you speak of, there's no place for that. No, no. You know, you, you, you said something. Also, there are two illnesses in our modern world amnesia and anesthesia. I think a lot of our listeners will be able to relate to anesthesia in a sense, you know, the numbing out using whether it's money, you know, work, porn, video games, uh, sex, TV, whatever, gambling, alcohol. What are we, what have we forgotten? <laughs> what's, what's the amnesia part of that? I know there's something, I feel it, I know it, you speak to it. I, what, what, what do you say about that? Um, I guess before we move too far into sure, that, sure. I, I want to just acknowledge your other question about my own defeat. Ah, yes. Thank you for, for calling back to that. Yes. Yeah, it was, it was the time when, the one that's coming to my mind, there's been multiple defeats as well. But I had, I think, just turned 40 and everything was good, just like you were describing. I had a family, it was... I had a young son, I was house on the hill, everything was beautiful, and I was dying inside. Mm -hmm. There was a, a mm -hmm. slow, a slow suffocation that was happening inside me, a depression that was borderline suicidal. And the defeat saved my life because it was the only point at which I was finally able to say, I need help. And that's when I surrendered and asked three men to, to do a ritual for me. Mm -hmm to help me get out of this grave that I was digging every day. Mm. That defeat, like the men who come into my office or come to the retreats and or do the initiation work, that defeat, if we're really candid about it, is the invitation towards some sense of connectivity again, out of that isolation. The heroic is a very isolated archetype. It's a singular presence. Mm. You're, you're above everything else. You need no one. The hero is basically independent and autonomous. It's the other parts of us that recognize how how much I need other people. You know, when I did redefine weakness for men, that it's a weakness only says that the next step I take, I cannot take alone. That's all it says. Mm. It's not a commentary. It's not a commentary on your inadequacy or your worthlessness. It just says the next step requires support. Mm. But that's a shameful thing for a man to admit. So that's my, one of my personal moments of defeat. And I've heard you tell this story and I love this story. What, what did those, what did those three friends do? Uh, they 
took me into a ritual process that um, radically shook my world. Yesterday was the anniversary of that, 20, 25 years ago. That, that uh, they put me through an ordeal that part of the strategic mode of getting by in this culture is to pretend you always know what the fuck is going on. And they put me through a ritual where I couldn't pretend it anymore. I tried to figure out what they wanted from me in the ritual, like, well, they want me to fight or they want me to, uh -huh. and then, you know, and of course those are empty gestures yeah. kind of conjured by my mind. But what I had to do is completely let go of all of that. And in my language, I had to become deranged. Yeah. I had to let go of control and something in that moment, some radical transmission between this world and the other world occurred. And I saw exactly what I needed to do in that moment and what I needed to do in terms of fighting for my life for the first time. See, I was a great accommodator. I, was a, I, I knew what people wanted from me and I was very good at mm -hmm. giving people what they wanted. And that was my provisional sense of belonging. Yeah. But my yeah. depression was about never feeling like I belong. I could pretend like I did. I could give you what I thought would please you, then you would like me and approve of me, but that's not, it's not the belonging. Yeah. That's strategic manipulation. I had to somehow break through that fiction and come into something much more authentic, much more real. In that moment, I considered that like a December 2nd threshold moment between the first 40 years and the last 25 years are so radically different mm. in terms of my presence. Mm -hmm. Everything that you were acknowledging before came out of that yeah. stepping into my life for the first time yeah. you know, and uh, occupying what soul was yearning to express but never having a conduit for it because i was so preoccupied with fooling everybody and I, f I find it and we'll, we'll come back to my other questions in, in, a, in a moment about amnesia and anesthesia but I, I i'm particularly struck by the format you could say of of that or the container of that experience three of your male friends created an ordeal for you yeah one of the things that I've that that no one ever really told me, and that I didn't trust. You know, I'm a former military guy. Ten years in the Air Force, um, was a captain in the Air Force, and I was in a fraternity in college. You know, I'm no stranger to men throughout my most of my life. But what I found also is that I didn't trust men. Mm -hmm. I didn't trust them. I didn't feel safe around men. Certainly not to be vulnerable. And yet, now later in my life. I find that I can't it feel, really feel deeply good about my life unless I have solid, trustable men around me regularly. And when I'm doing you know, men's work, you, one, one way we, we call it. So I, I'm, just struck, I'm just struck by that in your storytelling, in, in your experience, that, that it was your male friends putting you through an ordeal that was mm -hmm. difficult and challenging and left you no out except... <laughs> I, I, I don't even know how the language to use, but, but through or surrender or letting go or being deranged, as you say. Yeah, yeah. To upend the, the previous arrangement. Yeah, and then that takes a great deal of trust. Yeah. It also takes a great deal of familiarity. I had to be known that thoroughly mm. on some level by these men mm. to precisely design something. It wasn't cookie cutter. It wasn't, well, let's, you know whatever, but yeah. it had yeah. to have the precision 
even the language that was spoken during that ritual landed so squarely at the heart of the trouble that there was nothing I could do to evade, duck, to deny, to the only, like as we say, the only way out was through. And I'd still be on that hillside today if I hadn't. <laughs> they were not going to let me go. It was, it, was a, it was a seven hour ordeal and I was wrecked by the end of it. But something shifted so profoundly inside of me of what I needed to, how I needed to kind of structure my life and to carry myself into the world. And I'm struck by something that one of your friends said, uh, Maladoma Some, did I pronounce his name right? Yes. I think I read about this in, in Bill Plotkin's uh, book, Nature and the Human Soul, uh, about the, the initiation rites of passage that Maladoma Somme, in his culture, he spoke to, you know, their boys undergo a, a, an ordeal, similarly, and it could be that sometimes they don't survive, right? but that in their culture, they feel feel it, uh, I don't know if this is the right language, but but it's 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 better that a boy not survive that ordeal than that than, than he live into adulthood without ever having undergone the ordeal to be a, I can't remember the exact language he used there, but but I was again really struck by that. And how you're saying like your friends, I know we're speaking a, a bit poetically, but would have left you on that hillside um, had, had, had you not been able to make that crossover. Yeah, well, Maladoma is one of those men that was there. That oh, day. I love that. Oh, <laughs> man, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Three three men who knew ritual. Ah, yes. Deeply in their bones. That, But this ties us back into the amnesia piece. Well, he might have left you, so you're right. They might have left you there. Yeah, they, they, <laughs> definitely, they were wow. definitely gonna, not going to rescue me. I love it. Okay, thank you. That's really... That's good. But this, that. yeah, this, this ties us into the amnesia in the sense mm -hmm. of uh, having spent some time in his culture, you see the consequence of uh, a local culture that still remembers to some degree what's required to shape an adult human being. And when we forget that, when we abandon those practices, we end up with a collective of adolescents mm -hmm. that are self-centered, self-interested, but not communally interested. See, initiation in the traditional sense was never meant for the individual. Mm. No, it was not about my personal growth. Mm. It wasn't about making me a better person, yeah. more admirable. Mm. It was an act of sacrifice on behalf of the community to which now the initiative is, is committed and is devoted. Mm. It was an act for the other. It was mm. an act for the community. Now, that's such a strange thought for us because yeah. everything's always about me. I go to therapy for me. I, you know, I do spiritual workshops for me. And, but in the traditional sense, initiation was for the community. It was for the commons. It was for the watershed. It was for the cosmos, but it was not about you. And we have that completely twisted around. This is part of the amnesia. Yeah. You forget the structures that create living culture. You're reduced to mimics of it. So we have personal growth rather than initiation. Mm -hmm. There's similar territory, right? but the outcome is so radically different. Yeah. They, almost, they almost separate in the long run. Well, I'm, I'm smiling and laughing because there's something, you know, my, my, uh, my childhood bestie, I, I'm so blessed that I get to my childhood best friend. We've been friends for 37 years. He and I a year ago, uh, and we, we, we started facilitating men's work together. 
and we've created this 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 year long men's initiation program called we call it Elevate 2021. This year we're now in Elevate 2022, and for for twelve men. And one of the things that he'll often in his when he's talking to men who have applied and want to be a part of this, you know, he's often he's a passionate man. He is a beautiful, beautiful man. I mean, he's he's one of the finest people I know on the planet. His name's Tate. And he'll often tell them, you need to know that this is not about you. You joining this program, this experience, this is not about you. You know, we'll often presence, you know, for whom does it matter that you're here in our in our work? And we'll say this does this is not and it's funny because I'll I'll you know Tate will tell me about these conversations and I'll be like, Tate, you can't necessarily just say that. You have to tell them it is also for them. <laughs> so I'm kind of laughing because, you know, there's that our culture, like I think on some level, these guys need to think that it is about them, but also it's not about them. You know, to the point you're I think that like that's that's that feels like soul language. Well, there's no doubt that the process radically changes them. Yeah, the, the the goal of initiation, if we can put that language on it, which is very, yeah. but if there's an intention behind initiation, part of it is is to crack the identity open, so that I am now part of the watershed. I am part yeah. part willow and part turtle and part, you know, sky and part lichen. I I become part of all that, and that's the intention, so that when something is happening to the watershed, it's felt in my bones. Mm -hmm. it's, it quickens me to respond to protection towards service rather than, again, my own internal world, which is beautiful. I love yeah. the work of the internal world, but what about the affiliation to the larger world? You know, I, I see it, you know, even in the language we use to describe this, elevate 2022. I was going to say something about that. I, I see it, elevate. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I think in your, you know, I've gone through a part of your, I'm still working on your Alchemy of Initiation uh, course that you hosted recently, which again, just a revelation. I know that you, you led a, a year long journey for men for 17 years. Yes. And you shared that for the first half of your journey was really a descent of sorts, an underworld's yeah. journey. Yeah, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that, how you helped steward men through the course of a year. What, because there's not a lot of things out there that I've ever been certainly part of or even seen that really do that, hold men for a year. And I, I'm doing it now and I'm learning so much. I mean, I have as much to learn as I have to teach. And you no, know, I have more to learn than I have to teach. That's been part of my paralysis myself of doing men's work is without elders showing me the way, like where that where the hell am I leading men? Mm -hmm. It's been a persistent paralyzing question. Where the hell am I taking guys? I don't even know where I'm going. Where, where are we going? <laughs> so, you know, I, I see elevate. I see it. I see it. Well, again, where are we going? So that it's a heroic term. Yes. And I see that. Yeah. Well, good. I mean, that's, that's really important to see how much it's always about rising. I mean, I, that's, the, that's that heroic archetype right there. It's always about rising. And nothing wrong with that, okay? It's a beautiful thing to, to, to grow and to get stronger. It's beautiful, but it leaves so much out. Yeah. So the first part of, our, of the initiation process was about shedding 
You know, we, we call our work the making of ordinary men because mm-hmm. we're so conditioned to try to be special. Mm-hmm. You know, to, and that specialness comes out of a fractured sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. So if I don't belong, then I better impress the hell out of you. you know? So I have to be something more than. Mm-hmm. I often talk about this image of you know, like watching a falcon fly. God, they're beautiful, aren't they? Mm-hmm. But not a single falcon up there is trying to be a special falcon. <laughs> they are yeah. just being themselves yeah and when the, when a creature is it's just itself it is most beautiful and when we're trying to be special there is no exchange the flow all comes towards me and i offer yeah. nothing so part of becoming an ordinary man is to get back into the exchange hard and you know come back into the conversation with the living world yes i have gifts to give and yes i am in need of gifts and but that exchange has to occur out of a mutuality. And so that making of ordinary men is, is part of that thinning out and shedding, letting go. I remember we were up in Oregon doing a, a year long with a group up there. And on the first night, we're sitting out under the moon. And, and I use that language, you know, that our work here is, to, is to, to make ordinary men up you. And a man, almost like he had springs in his butt leapt off the ground and started screaming at me. I've spent my whole life mm-hmm. trying to become special. And you're going to take that away from me? Mm-hmm. That's how uh, desperately we cling yeah. to the identities, you know? And uh, it's scary to let them go. Who yeah. will I be without that special identity of a perfect guy? I mean, in graduate school, I was called the golden boy. That was my nickname, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I was so polished and shining, but inside it was so dead. Mm-hmm cold yeah. so that first yeah. the first half of the year we work in in the underworld the yeah. first the first weekend we work with what we call the predator and grief mm-hmm. so we go into this territory of what is the main adversary that we really have to confront what is this energy of death that we have made agreements with over and over again to live small to be good and nice boys but never to find our authority and our presence in the world. We could spend several days unpacking this idea of predator. Yeah, I know. And then after you unpack that one and you see all the collusions and the, and the ways in which you've lived part partial lives, kind of backing your way into the grave without ever really arriving here, there's tremendous grief. So that first week that we're together, we do a confrontation with predator, which is what that ritual those men did for me. Mm. That's what I saw in that ritual. Okay. Yeah. That I was in collusion with the energy, energies of death, and I was dying every day. Mm-hmm. So we do a ritual that's really powerful, which I cannot describe to you. And then after that, we move into grief work. And the amount of grief that the men begin to share around having lived these provisional lives, trying to figure out what people expected from them. How do I fit in? How do I convince you to let me in? Another part of our amnesia, right? I mean, I was talking to Maladoma and he was saying, you know, in our village, it's the job of the community of the village to impress into the body of every child that they are somebody worthy of belonging and that they care, they're carriers of, of gift. Mm-hmm. I said, yes, in our culture, we've turned that 180 degrees mm-hmm. around where it's up to me to convince you that I'm someone worthy of being tolerated. Mm-hmm. And we spend yeah. a lifetime, again, this is our adolescent pursuit, a lifetime trying to find the ways that we can manage exile or belonging. 
Yeah. I'm always living on that very mm-hmm. thin edge between those two realities. So this is, again, part of what happens when we fall into amnesia and we forget these principles of living culture. Well, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm just, again, I'm just lit up and my, I mean, all the, all the, all the, the follicles on my skin are, are at, on edge because I'm, 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 you know, men, there's this, there's this pursuit of freedom, constantly freedom, more money, more status, more respect, more whatever, more likes, more admiration to be special, to be special. There's no freedom in that. That is the ultimate entrapment. And and as I'm hearing you describe, you know, the making of ordinary men, oh, what a release. What a what a fucking relief. I don't have to be special. Oh, I can just be. Yes. What that's the fucking freedom yeah. that we're all ironically looking for through our social media status or our bank accounts or whatever. It's in the make I, I'm so I'm just you know, again, feeling in a visceral level, you know, what you speak and the way that you speak it and articulate it. And um, my heart breaks. This is again, you know, you, yeah. my heart breaks. Yeah. You know, one of the things we have to really acknowledge, particularly, you know, men in general, is the emptiness that we, that we feel inside. Why do we pursue all those things you just mentioned? Mm. The status, rank, wealth, mm. privilege, you know, dominance. Why do we pursue those things? Well, because there's a quality of emptiness that we feel inside that is rooted in individualism and the absence of community. Mm. Individualism is a breeding ground for a feeling of emptiness. Mm. And we are addicted to individualism. Again, another aspect of of that heroic template is you shall always be sovereign. You shall always be alone. You shall need no one. And so in the absence of what we really crave, which is community, you know, sharing ritual together, grieving together, saying thank you together, dancing together, singing together, sharing meals together, dreams, you know, stories. Those are the things that we really long for. It isn't about what's on TV tonight yeah. or the latest cell phone. What we crave are what I call the primary satisfactions, the things that shaped us over hundreds of thousands of years. And this is where that amnesia really reaches its its pinnacle. We've lost yeah. the primary satisfactions, and we are a culture addicted to the secondary satisfactions. That's why we are the highest consuming culture on the planet. We make up what five percent of the population, something like that. I don't remember, but we we consume almost twenty five percent of the goods of the world. What is wrong? And you can never get enough of what you don't need. And that is not the very essence of addiction, right? You want more and more and more. So we have millionaires and billionaires craving more. Like they don't have enough. But there can never be enough if you're not addressing the core issue, which is this emptiness. I was in a racism workshop some years back in Berkeley. And uh, we were going around the circle introducing ourselves. And just by the circle, I was the last one to share. And when it was my turn, I said, you know, I'm one of the things I'm really looking at is this question of emptiness. And a black man jumped, literally jumped out of his chair and pointed at me and said, that's it. Until your people address this issue, you'll continue to kill from us and steal from us every fucking day. Mm. And it just was like this, okay, I get it. That is my spiritual responsibility to dig into this hole, weep into this hole, mm-hmm. and help other people understand that they're living in this hole. 
that can never be filled by things. The opposite of emptiness is not fullness. It is presence. It's entanglement. It's embodiment. That's the opposite of emptiness. Mm -hmm. It's not more. It's engagement, you know. That's what the initiation is really about. So that first half a year is really about kind of cracking open the conditioned shell of a man's psyche, according to Western civilization, white Western yeah. civilization. Yeah, yeah. And un, un, kind of unmasking that and seeing the cost of that. Yeah. And then we, then we dive deep into the, to the quality and character of their wounds. And through that lens of the wound, they begin to catch a glint of what their medicine might look like. And then we work with love and power. How do those two dynamics exchange with one another, fulfill each other, rather than choosing one or the other? You know, a lot of us are nice boys, so we think yeah, we yeah. choose love. And then yeah. Jung would say that our power then goes into the shadow. Mm. Or conversely, we, we choose power, and he, then he said, mm. then our love goes into the shadow. But we need mm. both. Yeah. We need power that's infused with love, and we need love that's potent that has vitality behind it. Love yeah. has to become not maudlin, but robust to love our world, our children, the generations to come. That yeah. requires a love that isn't, you know, saccharine or sentimentalized. Yeah, I like to say far less eloquently that it's not about choosing between heart or brains and balls. It's about connecting our heart to our brains and our balls. Yeah. And I would really like to explore uh, grieving with you because that's that's what brought me to you, the, your book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow. Mm. And and it's related to what it's a, you know, from what we're just exploring right now. I mean, my, I, you know, the heartbreak that I experience regularly when I look into the world and see what we're doing. Right. I, I think I think you or someone you you quoted or, or someone. I don't remember. I don't remember where I get so many of my references these days, <clears throat> but but you know, participating in this culture requires destroying the planet. To just participate, I have to. I have to destroy the planet. I, my, my heart breaks every day when I look out. I have a beautiful view in my home here in Los Angeles, and and I look out, and what I see hurts me every day. It speaks to the amnesia and the anesthesia. Yeah, and um. Your book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow, Francis, and, and to all my listeners, it's one of the most beautiful books I've ever read. It's not a long book. It's not complicated, but it's gorgeous. Mm. It's beautiful. It's it's profound. And and you know, I, I find just to, as an aside, I find that, you know, the the teachers that that do real that really do what I you know, what we might call soul soul centered work, you know, therapeutic work, whatever, soul infused work, use a lot of poetry. You know, you're quoting, quoting Rilke a lot. Um, Joanna Macy and, and Mary Oliver and different, you know, John O'Donohue. And, and so, you, you, you know, your book, which again was gifted to me by a client that I was working with, a man who's going through a breakup, just went off like a bomb inside of me in the most beautiful way. Mm -hmm because it connected to something that I was already waking up to, that there's so much grieving undone inside of me. So, you know, a few of the things I just want to sort of list that, 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 that really opened up for me, and I have some questions around this. 
you know, that our grieving was never meant to be so private. Holy shit. Why is that so obvious? But yet I never, it never occurred to me. <laughs> well, how, how could it? I mean, if, yeah. if the context is heroic, then it's, has to be private. Mm. Yeah. Grief is one of those things that reveals the heart. Mm. And one of the primary, you know, principles of heroic lifestyle is keep the heart protected. Yeah. So we can't grieve publicly. We can't grieve mm. in the open. I mean, that's one of the most beautiful things that happens in the initiation work and also in the retreats that I do uh, is to see men holding each other mm -hmm. as they're grieving. It's so profoundly you know, reparative mm. to this incredible isolation that we've been mm. confined to, this solitary confinement, um, to come out of yeah. that into each other's arms and weep. Oh, it's, it's precious. Also, that grief un unmetabolized or un uh, I don't know unacknowledged, unseen, un un unworked with, and becomes bitter. Yes, that yeah. landed. That really landed for me. Yeah, you can feel it. I mean, you can see it, it manifesting. Uh, I mean, when people come to see me in my office, they often come in with this self-diagnostic process of depression. Mm. And what I often say to them is, it sounds more like oppression, mm. that, that there are layers and layers of sediment that have come into your life from untouched sorrow, untouched grief. And you can begin to feel how it begins to taint the sweetness of life into something bitter, where you begin to reject life and to uh, pull away from life and that's why we want to do the work of grieving is because it's it's the way in which the heart is once again quickened and softened and opened part of why it's so hard to be a human being right now is that there's so much coming into the heart mm. that, is, that is griefful you know that there's so much sorrow uh, and we're not wired we're not designed to digest this much loss and grief on a day-by-day -day basis so if we don't have a a practice Mm -hmm. to keep that material moving, then you have to shut down. Yeah. Yeah. So all praise for numbness, all praise for anesthesia. It helps us to endure, but it certainly doesn't help us to stay engaged. I've chosen, as I think many, many men will, I've, I've, I've chosen a partner, in my case, a woman, uh, an intimate, my wife, who feels deeply, cries regularly. Yeah. She, she does it as a practice. She knows she needs to. Yes. And yet my nervous system is not so open as that. I could, I, you know, I might say I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in the work. I'm, I'm working on it, doing the things that I need, that I, that I think I will, will be helpful. I'm still working on that. And, and yet I, I, I know that in my, in my, in my calcifying around grief, my wife doesn't get all of me in many ways. She doesn't get to feel a lot of me and that doesn't serve mm -hmm. us no but that's very well said and i appreciate your honesty about that i mean i think we have to have a tremendous amount of self-compassion for where we are mm. i wrote in my book the, the wild edge of sorrow that grief work is what opens the heart to compassion for the suffering of others but i didn't write in there is, is that it requires self-compassion to open to our own grief mm -hmm. 
So we have to actually bring enough kindness and warmth. See, when, when grief is not metabolized, it turns cold. It's an old alchemical idea that you have to keep the material warm for it to move. And when we neglect our grief, when we turn away from it, when we don't trust it, when we're fearful of it, those are all cold states. And so then the grief congeals and hardens and we can feel it in our heart. When the heart becomes, well, why is congestive heart failure the number one cause of death? Well, it isn't just you know, French fries. <laughs> it's also the fact yeah. that we have forgotten how to keep the heart emptied, open, flowing. So we have to have a great deal of compassion that this is where we start. And it isn't about pushing through the grief. It isn't about forcing it. It's about softening to the grief. That's what I call taking up the apprenticeship with sorrow. Mm. Is how do I come into a lifelong companionship that I'll never be free of grief, ever. But I'd also, what I want is to have a, an ongoing living friendship with grief as if it's the companion walking alongside me every day, which puts me then in terms of the, of the bittersweet. That's the, that's the full measure. Mm. If I deny grief, I turn bitter. If I can companion grief, I can remember the bittersweet, mm. which is a deepening and a ripening. And I think that's what leads to elderhood in the long run. Mm. As someone who is not afraid to keep digesting the material of the world, the losses and tragedies and traumas of the world. Because that, that person cannot simultaneously see the sweetness, the beauty, the exquisite elegance of this world is not lost on someone who has done that work. Well, you, you quote uh, a Rilke, I mean, the, the depths of it, that you quote Rilke in your, in your book, be ahead of all parting as if it has already happened. Yeah. And I, I remember an experience when I was probably 20 years old. Uh, it was my last year of college in Arizona, with, and I was sitting on top this uh, rock with my girlfriend in college. And I remember distinctly realizing, it's probably the first time I was consciously aware that this moment is going to end. This is going to come and go in a blink of an eye. So better kind of lock it in my I remember feeling the the wind on my skin, mm -hmm. feeling, I mean, it's so visceral even now because I was so aware of the moments passing. And and but I, what I'm also aware of, and that's something that I've I've held with me throughout the years. That even before our conversation, for instance, there was a moment I, I was feeling grief. I was grieving and I was sad. My my, because I've been so excited for this, and I'm like, okay, we're gonna have this moment, and then this is gonna pass. And 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 there was a, a you know a heartbreak in that. I think, but in the past, and, and even perhaps now, there, there's a part of me that still just wants to bypass that grief. Yeah, 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 life life goes on, you know, suck it up. At what cost, Brian? My vitality. But yeah, what, I, I don't, I don't, I'm sure I don't even really know the full answer to that question. Yeah. To bypass the grief is what keeps the heart congested. I mean, I remember I was driving back from a men's retreat once with a friend of mine, and he, he just kind of quipped to me, so Francis, are you happy? And I said, I have moments of being happy, but I also have moments of being sad and lonely and angry and you know, heartbroken. And I said, I've stopped trying to be happy because I, I realized every time I didn't make it, I thought I was failing. 
because mm. we're a happiness culture. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but what I want is to be alive. And yeah. every one of those feelings has vitality in them. Mm. When I'm in my grief, I am fully alive. Grief, it cannot be domesticated. It is a wild creature. And you cannot. The only thing you can do is try to avoid it. You know, and that's that state that you just described of trying to bypass the grief. But that means my own aliveness, my own vitality, as you say, will be compromised and I will become smaller. Yeah. You know, the circumference of my life will continue to diminish. That's what that, that's where I was when I was 40 years old, mm -hmm. refusing to enter into the messiness of those things. Grief, yeah. grief is always there. Uh, something else that also was just a revelation for me was that grief needs to, to, to properly or genuinely grieve. We need containment and release. Yes. This again, blew up in me, Francis, because I realized, and you said this, you can't release your grief is not an exact paraphrasing, but you can't release grief if you're also being the container for it. I have been the container for my own grief forever. Right. Even as a child, the things that were happening to me, nobody ever really, except, you know, maybe a, a cousin died. And okay, so I, my, my dad held me and let me cry that out. But that's kind of it. All the other things I was going through that were happening, experiencing, mm -hmm. nobody held a container for that. And so I, I again, I conditioned, my body became conditioned to be its own container. No. no fucking wonder. No. I to this day, it's 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 a challenge for me to just let myself cry during a movie. Yeah, the two those two requirements. Again, if we go back to the heroic model, and you and you're not allowed to ask for that support, mm -hmm. you you become what I call a continuous. You recycle grief over and over again. You just you're just chewing the same bones. The same pieces are just tumbling through there over and over again and there's no release because in order for release to occur you have to be held and do mm -hmm. one job mm -hmm. which is to be the one doing the work that's why you don't see uh, in traditional cultures solitary grief work it's always communal now i can't tell you how many times after a grief ritual is over you know the, we spend usually three or four days together at the end of it Someone will speak up and say, you know, I've never done anything like this before. This was so beyond anything I've ever done. But then they'll say something like, but it felt oddly familiar. Mm -hmm. And that's the deep memory echo. That's beyond the amnesia. Yeah. There's a thing Jung said, we have an unforgotten wisdom at the core of the psyche. So in the unforgotten wisdom, we remember this. That's why when we're in that space, the psyche perks up, soul perks up and goes, that's what I've been waiting for. This is it. I've been waiting to be in circle and singing and kneeling side by side and having the shrine and everyone kind of collaboratively entering into the well of sorrow together. And my God, does the grief flow then? But I also yeah. just say in all honesty, and I think I've said this before in other contexts, that it took me three grief rituals before I shed my first tear. I was a very well-packed white man, mm -hmm. no, in control, <laughs> in control. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought the third time was going to be the same story. But then someone I knew and trusted came along and put their hand on my shoulder. Mm -hmm. And I looked at them and I saw something in their eyes. And then 
I was on the floor for three hours. And then yeah. that, that well finally broke open or that dam finally broke. Now tears are a very frequent guest in my house. In, in my in my last the men's retreat I did for my Elevate 2021 group back in August, you know, we did five days together and we'd been working with each other for already seven, eight months by this time. And you know, me and my my partner Tate, we're we're holding the container for that experience. We're the facilitators, we're the container holders for for these ten men. And I remember the very at the end, the very last day, you know, we do all, all, all the stuff we do. And at the end, the men want to honor Tate and I. You know, they want to put us in the middle of the circle and put their hands on us and speak into us. And 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 I remember in that moment. I don't even, there was no why for it. All of a sudden, my body just burst into tears, sobbing the shoulders and the whole body just, you know, something about just in that moment being held by these men. Yeah. You know, I've, I've, I've asked my friends, uh, the, a, a, a men's group that I've been in for a few years where, you know, we're all in it together. I'm not facilitating it. No one's facilitating it. It's just our men's group. I've uh, asked them all just in the last few weeks. I said, guys, I, I want to start doing monthly, and I, I'm hesitant to use the word, but gre grieving circles. And I'm hesitant to use the word only because there's that, I have that story that, well, the only people who are going to show up are the people who believe they have something to grieve. Something big happened, you know, a, de a death or a breakup, you know, something obvious. And I'm realizing that there's so much to grieve. I, I, it's more like I want to. I want to just talk about loss. And you, you, you've shared this in some of your your, you know, how do you get started doing this? I, I, I want to start leading these monthly, at least monthly circles where we just talk about loss and sorrow. H how do you? How would you suggest I start a conversation like that? With and by the way, even the fumbly way I've done it, all my friends are in. <laughs> they all get it. We all know. I mean, yeah. we talk about this. This is a real good group of men. We 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 know. We see. Just no one's brought that up yet, and I, I'm bringing it up, and so they're in. Well, um, thank you for doing that. I mean, I think most of us are just waiting for permission. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think there's such a uh, prohibition against entering into that room. There's also a fear of entering that room. Definitely. But one of the things we, you know, before you get too far into it, is talk about fear. Mm. Talk about, you know, why are we so hesitant to open this door? Mm -hmm. And like you said before, many of yeah. us did not have our grief held when we were young. So we don't feel like there's a bottom to it. So when we get into that territory, we feel like we're in free fall. Yeah. But part of why, why it's so valuable to do this in a group context is we begin to have faith in grief again, that it's not there to take me hostage. It's actually there to ripen me and make my heart more elastic and capable mm -hmm of holding not only my grief, but your grief and the children's yeah. grief and the salmon's grief and the complexity of grief. And then I think it's good to talk about the five gates. Yeah. You know, because we, yeah. we do only think of grief mm. primarily in terms of losing someone we love or a, a marriage ending or mm -hmm. people will then say, I'm really sorry about your loss. But the other four gates, you know, about personal losses to our integrity, you know, pieces of me that have to go into hiding and, you know, my shame, my feelings of worthlessness, my weakness, all those, all those outcast brothers, I call them. There's, that's a loss. That's a loss yeah. to my wholeness. 
And mm -hmm. every loss is worthy of grieving, but I can't grieve them because I hold them with contempt. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. part of the grief work oftentimes in that second gate is, and that's what therapy is about, mm -hmm. is kind of bringing in the outcasts in a way that we can grieve their, their absence for sometimes for a lifetime. Mm -hmm. And then we talk about the third gate, which is the sorrows of the world. And who doesn't know the sorrows of the world right now? Yeah. As you say, you look out your window into LA and you're you're looking into the belly of the sorrow. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's the quality of the air or the, mm -hmm. the homeless or the mm -hmm. rapacious consumption or mm -hmm. you know, the, the silencing of languages, the abuse yeah. to people of color. I mean, there's so much sorrow in the world. And part of our work is to come out of the fantasy that I'm separate from that. Yeah. We feel it in our tissue every day. Mm. And so we need places to talk about that. And then the fourth gate is um, what we expected and did not receive. This is the amnesia piece. Mm -hmm. That we're mm -hmm. wired for the entire spectrum of experiences that our deep time ancestors had. A village life, a tribal life. And I mean, that's in our DNA. Yeah. Both physiologically, but also psychologically, I think spiritually as well. That we expected to see 40 pairs of eyes looking back at us and seeing us and welcoming us and having belonging just kind of rooted in the bone so that I don't, I'm not anxious about that for the rest of my life. And then the last gate I call the ancestral grief, which has so much complexity to it as I sit with that one. The more I sit with that gate, the more I realize I think all grief is ancestral grief in the sense that, yes, if I have a wound around shame, which is my wound, well, where did that come from? Why did my family in some ways activate that wound if they themselves did not also know that wound? And how many generations back can I go to where the silencing of affection, demonstrations of love got nullified? Mm -hmm. How many generations back can I go? I can go back pretty many, you know, when that mm -hmm. wound began or the, you know, the lingering issues that we hold collectively around what happened to the native cultures when mm -hmm. white European people arrived here and then the importation of slavery. And we have still not even begun to scratch that grief collectively. Yeah. So we're, we're haunted by that unmetabolized sorrow. We are haunted by it every day through racial killing yeah. and, you know, economic injustices. I mean, that it is a lingering grief. So when someone says, I don't have much to grieve, yeah. bullshit. You have I, too much to grieve. I remember when Obama was elected, I was surprised to see, I mean, I voted for him. I was excited. I, I hoped he would win. But And when he won, I remember the, I felt lighter in a way that no other election is at well. Uh, that's <laughs> maybe the last one a little bit. And yet, boy, that's gone away. Yeah. Yeah, we see the backlash. I mean, we're entering a period, what I call the long dark, mm -hmm. which will be decades and decades, perhaps generations, multiple generations, where we are not going to see a whole lot of rising. We are in mm -hmm. a time of deep descent in both senses of that word. A lot of descent is happening right now. A lot of no is being spoken, but we're mm -hmm. also in a trajectory downward. And this is a necessary descent, because in the old alchemical language, this is the period of the negredo, the blackening. And in the blackening, that is the beginning process of 
shedding old structures, old paradigms, old ideologies, old things that do not sustain life. So we have to look at systemic racism and economic injustice, and we have to look at what's happening to our, our ecological systems. That's such a cold term to look what's happening to grizzly bears and mm. and and glaciers mm. and mm-hmm. you know the fact that here in California we have almost no water left. Mm-hmm. This is not something abstract. Yeah, this is immediate in in our flesh and in our bones. So yeah. this is right now. We have to deal with this now. And this is the long dark. This is going to take a long, long period. I just wrote the preface for a new book that's coming out by Dwayne Elgin called Choosing Earth. Oh, great. It was, it was the most difficult piece I've ever had to write mm. after reading his book and looking at what's coming in the 2030s, 2040s, 2050s, mm. beyond. It's scary. And we don't know if we're going to make it. But this planetary initiation, if we can make it, may offer something to those generations, perhaps not even born yet, that might begin to resemble what living culture looks like again. Mm-hmm. If we do the work now, we are planting seeds. I, I often say, I'm not going to see that. Mm. I'm not going to see that. Mm. I'm just about 66 years old. I'm not going to see mm. that sunrise. Yeah. But I can plant seeds now in the dark that when there is enough moisture and enough light, those seeds might emerge into something that can sustain life again. That's my job. That's your job. That's every man who listens to this podcast job. It isn't about my future, my benefit, but it's living for those who dream about being here. You and I are perfectly in sync because this is exactly where I was going, my next question, and, and really leading into the conclusion of our conversation. You, you use the term the long dark. I've heard you also use the term a rough initiation. Yes. You've also said... You know, the, the question that I was wanting to ask you about this, about, in, you know, I have it right here in my notes, that may last decades, if not generations. And you, you just, you know, right, we're, you and I are in sync, <laughs> just in terms of our, the flow of our conversation as well. And, and you know, I, I've, most of my life, I've been a fairly optimistic man. Maybe it's, maybe it's more of the, the, the heroic influence that I, you know, that I uh, couched in optimism. But. I would say probably for the first time in my life, I, I do at times feel deeply, deeply scared of what's coming. It's no longer kind of an abstract idea, climate change particularly. And I mean, I live in California too. I mean, you know, there was a month out of last year when we couldn't really breathe the air here very safely right. because of the fires. Yes, here too. And, and we're still pretty lucky. I mean, you know, climb, you know, other places in the world, uh, they're already losing their homes for, for climate reasons. Right. And I've heard you say something really beautiful about this as I reflect on, you know, how, how to hold this. I heard you say, there is no answer, but there is a response. Yes. Could, could you speak more to that? Yeah. I was speaking up in Victoria, Canada, about all of the things we're talking about to some degree, maybe not quite as deeply, but, and then a very young woman raised her hand and says, so what is the answer? How are we going to fix this? Mm. I said, there is no answer, but there is a response. And every one of us must decipher the response you are being asked to make and then to make it. Individually, I can't do a damn thing. Mm -hmm. 
collectively, mm. we might have enough care and enough courage to respond boldly enough to preserve something in the dark. You know, there's a term out of the Inuit culture called kartsaluni. The word translates something like um, sitting alone together quietly in the dark, waiting expectantly for something to occur. That's where we are right now. So we have to somehow let go of the fiction of fixing things. Because I think that comes out of the same mindset that created the problem. We're going to have to go into dreaming, into the imagination, mm -hmm. into the darkness, into the land below the, the land, uh, you know, into that underworld place and be dreamt into something. We can't figure our way out of this. It's going to require a completely different way of imagining what is happening for us right now. It's, I often say this is a time of courage and faith. Courage to keep our hearts open and faith that there's something intelligible about what is happening. Something intelligible. And if we listen, see this is a time of humility, a time of deep listening, a time of not knowing. You know, We don't know what the hell's happening. We're watching what some people call the great unraveling. Things are just falling apart. And they need to. Mm -hmm. They need to. Because what we've created is absolutely and utterly unsustainable for this planet. Yeah. So that's those structures have to fall apart. And that's scary because we rely upon those structures. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know what we're going to do without those structures. But this is where the return to living culture becomes so crucial to gather in small circles of people, to sing again. To, we, to, be, to have rituals dreamt into our bones again that might, might suture the tear between our psyches and the, and the soul of the world so we can come back into some kind of reciprocal relationship with her in a way that does not cause permanent damage, but that we're actually beginning to put something back into her body, mm -hmm. you know, and stop the great extraction. Do you have hope for us? humanity anyway it doesn't matter whether i have hope or not it would not change my behavior mm. no like that yeah it, you know i don't know but i have two grandchildren you know that brings tears i have two grandchildren mm. what am i supposed to do what if i'm hopeless does that mean i stop acting does that mean i stop talking and doing the things that i've been called to do hell no yeah I have to continue to do whatever I'm doing that I feel called yeah. my response. I have to have fidelity to my response. And I will do that until my last breath. And I don't know when yeah. that's going to be, you know, yeah. many, many fewer days ahead of me than behind me. That's for sure. Yeah. But um, I want them to be days that feed the body of the world. And hopefully my grandchildren will have something that endures. That's my act of love. Last question. And um, I'm just so grateful for our conversation today for, for our listener. And again, you know, we have women and men listen to this, but you know, I've, I've, my intention for this podcast is, is to speak to men specifically. So f what, what would you say? And you may have already said it, but I would I'd like to ask this question as a sort of a final question. What would you say is the biggest challenge facing a man today? And what, what, what one piece of wisdom might you offer in the face of it? 
mean, we've said it, I think, in many different ways, but the primary challenge is uh, the fiction of separation, the idea of individual salvation, the idea of individual perfection, the idea of uh, somehow the primary purpose of life is to fool the world into thinking you're mm-hmm. somehow special. So what an advice, I would just invite the men to become transparently vulnerable. Remember that feeling you had a little while ago when we talked about becoming an ordinary man mm-hmm. and the relief that fell on yeah. your shoulders? Mm-hmm. I would pray for that for every man. Because <laughs> then we can make this pivot away from mm. trying to impress to trying to participate. There's a way in which we are so preoccupied by self-obsession because we're so anxious about our place in the world, if we could grant that to each other. See, there's a, there's a real important piece here around where we're always looking for belonging, right? Yeah. We're always trying yeah. to find those, those little places of belonging. Well, at some point, at least by 40 or so, at least by 47, mm-hmm. you need to stop looking for them and become one. You know, you need to become mm-hmm. a you need to become a house of belonging. Yeah. You see other people around you who do who feel lost and bewildered and mm-hmm. disconnected and alienated and yeah. offer them a place of shelter. Two yeah. things happens. One of them is that that person begins to feel at home in the world, and who knows what gifts they might be able to share then. And you, by the very act of making a home, become a place where you know belonging. So I would invite your listeners to do that as well. Yeah. I, and I think that's a probably the core intention, even of my Elevate program. You know, I know we use that language, but you know, I don't promise men that they're going to make more money, that they're going to succeed in any different, you know, in any external way. I don't personally give a shit about any of those things. I think, and I don't know, maybe we haven't articulated it so much like this, but it's 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 creating a, a house of belonging for men. Yeah. In in the individual heroic world, that that to me has been the greatest gift of my to myself of of regularly gathering with men in this way. Beautiful. So I, I love that. Thank you for that, uh, Francis. Where can our listeners? And I, I'm gonna just you know keep promoting the heck out of you and your work, and I, you know uh, everything I can do to help people discover you. I'm gonna do. Uh, but where where would you like? our listeners to go to learn more about what you're up to right now? Uh, the easiest thing is just uh, francisweller.net. That's my primary website. And that's where you can find, well, we're not doing a lot right now, program wise, mm-hmm. most of it's all online, mm-hmm. but uh, there's a lot of resources in there for programs that we have done that have been recorded that are available. And I mean, everything I'm doing, everything that every piece that you've listened to around the recordings has one primary intention, which is to grow us up, you know, to get us outside of that adolescent obsession and begin to show up as as uh, robust adults in the world mm. so that the world might stand a chance. Mm. Yeah. Well, I am all in, sir. I'm all in with you. I am all in for you and for us. Yes. Um. I am so profoundly grateful for this conversation, for you saying yes, for you, uh, for you offering your time and your insight and your presence and your wisdom and your, your graciousness. And thank you so much. You're welcome, Brian. We might just have to do this again. Will, I, <laughs> yes. Thank you, sir. 
Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to my dear guest, Francis Weller. Find him at Francis Weller. It's F-R-A-N-C-I-S-W-E-L-L-E-R dot net. And find any links and resources and books mentioned in the show notes, as well as other podcast episodes at brianreeves.com slash podcast. And also remember, Elevate 2022, my year-long coaching experience for men committed to thriving, is open for applications. Go to brianreeves.com slash elevate. It's Brian with a Y, reeves.com slash elevate for details and to apply. Only 12 men will be invited on this journey with me, and as of this moment, only five spots remain. brianreeves.com slash elevate. And if you can think of anyone who might be served by what you just heard in this episode, please share this episode with them now. And to help more men benefit, as well as the mothers and sisters and children and the lovers who love men and and just our our whole world community benefit from this amazing conversation, please, right now, go to whatever app you're using and rate this podcast with five stars and and add some glowing words because your words matter to help people, to help bring people to this work and to these important conversations. So go and please leave a review so that you too can lead more men this way. And don't forget to subscribe yourself while you're at it. I'm your thriving life and relationship coach, Brian Reeves. Brian with a Y, Reeves. Until soon, keep your head up, your breath relaxed, and your thoughts inspired.